Isn't that amazing? When did we lose that? When, what was the turning point when we became too cool? Was that middle school? I think it does it to all of us, doesn't it? Like, I remember, so I've got three little boys, seven, six, and about to turn three, which blows me away. But anyway, uh, my, my youngest one, Nehemiah, he cracks me up sometimes. The things that he gets excited about, it, things like as simple as, and this one's kind of awesome, I'm not going to lie, but like, I'll come home. And he'll literally, when he hears the door, or sometimes if he doesn't hear the door and he turns the corner but sees me, because our front door kind of has a little hallway before you get to the kitchen, he'll start jumping up and down. Daddy's home, daddy's home. It's like, when did we lose that? What if my wife greeted me like that? (laughs) And there are days that she does, but it's usually not good for me. It's like, oh, no. All right, go have mommy time. Anyway, I don't know about you, but the hardest person in the family, hands down, to buy presents for is my dad. Anybody else in the room? Amen. No, I'm the only one. Because what do you buy the man who's now well into his 60s, has enough resources to buy whatever he wants and does whenever he wants it? What in the world do you get that man? And it has been this way my whole life. Now, when, you were a, when I was a kid, it was fairly easy. Whatever I would have gotten him, he would have been happy with. But there was absolutely no way to surprise this man. So the, the best that we could come up with was um, every year I would know what my mom bought him and then my dad would ask me what my mom bought him and I would tell him and my mom would start telling me a tie so that I would tell my dad a tie even if that was only maybe not true <clears throat> or one of the gifts. Family baggage here. So hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. My mom <laughs> taught me to lie to my dad. But we would get to Christmas Day, and my dad would open his presents, and he had the same statement for all, all of his presents. Here it is. See if you're like this. You ready? Well, gee, that's nice. Thank you, honey. How did you know? That's like, Dad, can you give me any, can you give me that? Can you give me anything more than what you gave me? So I started realizing the other day, my, when my second son, Levi, he's been wrapping presents because he can't wait for Christmas Day. And every day I come home, he's like, Mom, Mom, can we give Dad his Christmas presents? And my wife is like, no, we're waiting for Christmas. It's two weeks away. It's okay. You need to learn patience and expectation and blah, blah, blah. So what he started doing is making presents for me, which is just adorable. He's painting things and he's drawing things. And the other day he wrapped up a piece of my gum to give me. It was unchewed. <laughs> Thankfully, it was unchewed. And he'll wrap them up and then he stands there with eyes wide open like, Dad, I made you this present. What do you think? Well, the first 10 times it was cute. But then it became like 10 times a day every day. And it gets hard, amen, parents, to start feigning excitement. Now, here's the problem. There's no surprise anymore. You, you painted another thing. You drew another thing. You colored another thing. It's like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And then it gets to the point, like, okay, son, can we just read a book? Can we play a game? Can we do something else besides this? So, okay, here it is. Here's the reason. So the other day, I decided to surprise him with joy. I decided when he brought me the present, I was going to act like it was my favorite present of all time. And son, if you ever listen to the sermon, please know I did it because I love you. So he hands me this present, and it's got something inside that he just drew for me. And I open it up. I go, hey, I love it. And I'm ripping it open like I'm a kid again. And I'm like, look, and I go, this is great. I'm jumping up and down. This is amazing. I pick him up, and I swing him around. His eyes are huge. I think he doesn't know what to do. He is, he is like terrified with joy. For the next three hours, he kept saying, Daddy, why did you respond like that? Now, it could have been he was scared. (laughs) I think, I think it had to do with the surprise factor. 
he was literally, literally, I can't even say the word. He was literally caught off guard by my joy. Now, would it be any less significant if we were to respond with that kind of joy to God? If he were to give us the greatest gift of all time, how many of us might go, well, gee, that's nice. I've heard it before. I mean, let's be honest. If you've been in the church for any length of time, and some of you, this is all brand new, but is there much that I could say today that you haven't already heard about the story? Some of you could probably get up here and teach better than I could on this subject. But what I want to do is not come at Christmas the same way we always have. What I want to do is open up the story with fresh eyes, fresh hearts, and ask this one very simple question. God, what do you have for me today? So join me, if you will. Open your Bible to the book of Luke. It'll be here on the screen. And let's just read a little bit of the story together. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. If you grab the Bible that we provided for you, I believe it's page 779. We do have a couple versions of this floating around, so it could be different than the one you have. But In the sixth month... Of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man, and his name was Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So Mary asked the angel, so how is this going to happen? Because I'm uh, what they call a virgin. And the angel replied, Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. All right, we'll, we'll pick up some more in a minute. Let's just talk and see what we have to learn for, for us today. So, note, first of all, if you weren't here last week and you're not familiar with the story, you're online listening, whatever it is, <clears throat> at this point in the story, we've already learned about two other characters, and we just learned here they are relatives of Mary. So Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, we talked about them last week, are a much older couple. He's a priest, and uh, she's going to be pregnant with a son who will later be known as John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist. And this is huge. Because what God is doing, by the way, he's doing in a family, a family who is well-positioned and prepared to be a blessing, okay? This is huge. Now, there's a lot of things we can unpack someday if we ever really want to go deeper about their family lineage and, and David and <clears throat> him coming from a priestly tribe and all these other things, but check this out. So, 
She now shows up on the scene, sorry, Gabriel shows up on the scene to Mary, and um, Elizabeth is roughly six months pregnant. That'll become relevant in just a moment. So Gabriel says to Mary, by the way, you have found favor with God. Now, it's hard to nail down exactly how old um, Mary is. Our best guesses say between 12 and 16, with most people landing at around 15 to 16 years old, which sounds really freaky deaky to us today. But in that culture, it was normal for a girl to be betrothed at about that age. Do not get any ideas, teenagers. We don't live 2,000 years ago today. You want to go without electricity and indoor plumbing? We could talk about it. But if you don't want to do that, no Wi-Fi, no cell phones, we're stuck in the culture we live in. So that wasn't as funny as I'd hoped. Moving on. (laughs) So what a betrothal was, was it was kind of like an engagement where you're already married. So in our culture, we don't fully understand the way this worked. In our culture, if you're engaged, um, that's kind of like, I promise I'll marry you on this day because, baby, I love you forever and always. And as long as you're living, my baby, you'll be. However, if things go sour between here and there, I still got time to get out of this. And we're only going to be out a few thousand dollars. In that culture, if you were betrothed, you were engaged, but it was considered the same as marriage. It was a binding agreement. You couldn't act married. You couldn't live together. You couldn't um, do marital things together. You weren't sharing a bank account. However, you also could not be with someone else. There was no outs. It was the same as being married. So if something were to happen, you would be unfaithful in the season. Uh, It would be considered adultery. And so that's important for a little bit later in the story. This angel shows up. You need to understand angels don't look like precious moments. Especially this angel. This is one of the few angels we know by name. He's a bad dude. He's not a bad dude. He's a really good dude. He's tough. You need to picture whoever the toughest warrior that you know of is. Now imagine him on an angelic scale. When Gabriel shows up in the room, nobody goes, oh, how sweet. Can I put you on my shelf? Every single person in the Bible who meets Gabriel, you know they have the same response. Who are you and why are you here? And what do you have intended for me? Gabriel is tough. I love it. I don't know what angel school looks like. Um, Maybe there isn't one. But maybe in angel school, after a few thousand years, they go, okay, the first thing you need to say when you show up is um, do not be afraid because humans are always afraid when they see us. So he shows up, and he actually doesn't say it first. He says it in his second comment, but the first thing he says, the first thing he says is, do not be afraid. The first thing he says is, you have found favor with God. Now think about that for a minute. You may not fully understand the context of why this is important, but Mary, again, 15, 16-year-old girl, she comes from Nazareth. Nazareth, literally, we don't even know where it's located. We have a city today we believe is the right one. We could be wrong. It's probably close, if anything. It doesn't show up in historical documents. There's a guy named Josephus. He's a Jewish man who was hired by Rome to write history. He doesn't even mention Nazareth. Like, it's kind of like nowhere. We can't figure out exactly where it is because it's a small town in the middle of nowhere in the middle of Galilee. This is why when one of the disciples later hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he goes, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And Nazareth not only would have been a small town in the middle of nowhere, but as far as the biblical timeline, it didn't really have any major significance. Now, Bethlehem, now there's a big city. And that's where Jesus will eventually be born. She is a young girl from nowhere important. So, God 
rarely shows up in our lives in the most expected ways. God almost always shows up in our lives in the most unexpected ways. The question for us is, are we ready for him to show up in unexpected ways? Well, Mary was. I mean, she's a virgin. And that's a really important deal to the story. So in case you're not familiar with the Bible story and and biblical ethics, according to the Bible, a man and a woman are to reserve what I'll call the marital bed for a husband and a wife. And that's it. One husband, one wife. That doesn't mean everybody in the Bible did it right. And by the way, God still used many of them. But what it does mean is the Bible lays out a morality that says a husband and a wife, not a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Not a boyfriend and a boyfriend. Not a girlfriend and a girlfriend. A husband and a wife in a marriage committed to each other. For better, for worse, for richer, or poor, in sickness and in health. Faithful to each other. And we meet this young teenage girl, and what might be the most mind-boggling thing is where we believe Nazareth was located, it sits kind of on a hill overlooking a valley, the Valley of Megiddo. You may have heard of that. It's in Revelation. We call it Armageddon. That's literally the, he, or the, the term Valley of Megiddo. And it's a place where many, many battles were fought. So Mary literally was raised in a small town in the middle of nowhere outside of a military outpost. So there were probably military people all around her. It might be even more amazing she stayed a virgin in that kind of context. And that's not a knock, but my military friends will back me up on this one. This is all relevant to why God chose Mary. See, when God shows up to do something amazing, something surprising, something totally unexpected, he often shows up in people who have prepared the way for the Lord. This is the whole ministry of that other baby inside Elizabeth, John the Baptist. He has come to call people to a place of repentance so that the Lord could show up and do something amazing in them. And when God's people are ready in their hearts and in their lives for God to do something amazing, watch out. What happens when people aren't ready? You don't have to go far in the story. Jesus begins his ministry roughly 30 years later from this point, and quickly, early in his ministry, he comes back home, maybe to visit family, maybe to finally take the gospel there. And as he starts to preach in his hometown, they all start looking around going, isn't this the son of that carpenter, Joseph? Like, who are you to think that you could come here and tell us these kinds of things? And Jesus had to leave his own hometown, he says, because there was no faith there. See, there's something powerful that happens in our hearts and in our lives when we lay a foundation of faith, and that faith is followed up with action. And all of a sudden, God says, now there's a man and there's a woman that I can use. They have expected me to show up and do something in them. Is it true for you? This is why Gabriel shows up, says to Mary, oh, favored one. You are about to be blessed beyond what you can imagine. Now, let me just be quick. Okay, so for my Catholic uh, friends and my diet Catholic friends in the room, um, Mary was human just like me and just like you. Okay, Mary was not perfect. Mary actually needed the Savior in her belly. 
This is huge for case you have some Catholic roots and you've been told or taught other things. Mary's human. And that becomes so clear in the rest of Luke and Matthew and Mark and John. But for today, I just want to focus on this. And in this moment, while she's not perfect, she is a good woman. And God has chosen to use her. And boy, is she going to be blessed. But that blessing is mixed with a little bit of cursing. We find out throughout the story, Mary has great sorrow. Great sorrow. Most likely, her husband dies early. We know this in part because we don't really see any reference to him. But we hear lots of reference to Mary and Jesus' earthly brothers, like James. Not only that, but Mary actually watches her oldest son be crucified on the cross. How terrible is that? I thought, even though I thought he did it up a little bit, Mel Gibson did a phenomenal job with this in the movie The Passion of the Christ. There's going to be sorrow, but in this moment, it's not sorrow, it's joy. Now, nine months from now, it's going to be sorrow and joy at the same time, like every pregnant woman. Amen, women? But right now, there's joy. Like, what in the world could this mean? And Mary's pondering that. Now, there's a huge difference if you were here last week. Zechariah, when he got the message, your wife, your older wife, much further along in years, is going to be pregnant, his response is, wait a minute, dude, how's that going to happen? And Gabriel goes, are you kidding me? I'm Gabriel. That's my version of it, but that's how it went. Mary doesn't look at Gabriel and say, well, I don't know, how can that be? Mary looks at him more like confused, perplexed, like, okay, I'm still learning this thing, but my mama told me about how it works, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. How's that going to work? And Gabriel gives her confidence. You don't need to be worried, Mary. In fact, I'll even give you a sign. Your relative, Elizabeth, even though she's much further along in years, at least I heard from Zechariah, she's pregnant with a baby as well. In other words, you can have confidence. God can do anything, old or young, barren or haven't been there yet. There's nothing outside of God's realm of possibility. See, the problem with us is we're too much like Nazareth. We lose faith in God to do unexpected things and expecting people. So we stop preparing our hearts and we stop preparing our lives and we just get stuck in the mundane. Amen? And sometimes we get stuck in it in this season because we're just so stinking overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but, you know, fall carried on quite some time this year. So I had to keep waiting for leaves to fall because I don't want to do it six times. So all of my fall work gets pushed back, and I've got more to do in preparing for Christmas and decorating. And, oh, by the way, I have three little boys. Have I mentioned that? And, man, it just seems to be always overwhelmed. And if I'm not careful, my heart will slip from focused on God to focused on anything and everything else. And there's a problem with that because what I do in that moment is I make me center stage in the story of God. See, this is mind-boggling, and if you're visiting with us today, if you're listening online, this is huge for you to grasp because this is the big picture for a moment of what faith is really all about. God is writing a story, but it's his story, and he's the main character. And as he's writing this story, he's such a good and loving God, he wants to invite other people to play a part in the story, but he's still the main character. And what we do in sin is we hijack the story of God, and we make it about ourselves. So then we get angry at God. Why are you doing this? And why are you doing that? And why isn't this working out? And if they would do this, and if they would do that, and God's going, whoa, this is my story. I'm the author and the perfecter. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the first word and the last word. In fact, literally my son is going to be called the word because the whole thing written is about him. 
And so here's the point. The way God has created this thing is because he is the author, the creator, the writer of the story, he's made himself center stage in your heart. And your heart longs for worship, but if it doesn't find worship in him, it'll seek after anything or anyone else to satisfy it. But everything else you stick in there is going to leave you wanting. It's going to leave you with a hole. It's probably going to leave you with a lot of deep, deep hurt. And for Israel... It's been over 400 years since God has spoken. That's a long time. God would speak in the Old Testament through prophets. He'd come to them and he'd inspire them and they'd say, this is what the Lord has said. And then he would leave them. Now we live in a totally different day today. Now God speaks through the Holy Spirit inside every believer. Every prophet longed to have what you have today, believer. Do you know that? That's amazing. The Holy Spirit would literally come upon them briefly in the same way the Holy Spirit came upon Mary briefly and they would get a word from the Lord, a vision from the Lord, a message from the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit living in you and he doesn't leave. He takes up residence as he's changing you and shifting you and creating you and making you into the likeness of God's son, the one that's inside Mary. This is a new day. So Israel had gone over 400 years. They hadn't heard a word from the Lord and all of a sudden Mary hears a word from the Lord. This young girl in the middle of nowhere, she's nobody. She's poor. She has nothing, but she's significant to God. What does that tell you? God knows. God sees. It's his story. One of the most popular names of God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Jireh. In Hebrew, there's no J. It's Yahweh Yirah, and it literally means the God who sees that's a terrifying term if you're not in a good place with God. Because it means there's no detail of your life that he isn't looking into. But it's a glorifying thing if you're right with God. Because there is no detail of your life he's not looking into. Mary stands ready for God to show up prepared her heart, prepared her life, so that when Gabriel shows up, he can literally say, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. He's about to make you the mother of the Messiah. That's a good day, but a terrifying one. Don't miss this. Because she was betrothed to Joseph, this is considered adultery. I mean, let's just be honest, okay? We often think that when we look back at history, like they're clueless, okay? They probably didn't know what an X and Y chromosome was. They probably didn't know what a DNA strand was. But don't take that to mean that they didn't know how this worked. They were very, very clear on how little babies came about. So you're Mary now, and you just get done talking to the angel, and maybe it took a day or two, you had to sit on this one, because you're like, how in the world am I going to tell them this? We find out a little bit later, three days later, she goes to, her, uh, to, to Elizabeth's house. Yeah, no kidding. She's probably still wondering, how am I going to tell them this? I don't know if she told them or not. I, I think that's an interesting detail that's not in the story. Because if she came back three months later, she's probably, probably starting to show a little bit. Now they wore bigger outfits. Maybe she could have hit it a little longer. At some point, you got to go to mom and dad. So, um, big news. I finished cleaning the kitchen. And I'm pregnant. And I didn't do what it takes to get pregnant. Could you imagine Christmas for that family? Did you get the joke? Nobody gets it? All right, forget it. Anyway, 
Again, I'm not funny. I just, I'll be up front, all right, if you're visiting today. Could you imagine what that was like? I'll tell you this. We learn in Matthew that Joseph at some point found out Mary was pregnant. And him as a deal breaker. Now, Joseph had the ability to actually um, punish her or publicly shame her. He literally could have brought her out and mocked her in front of the whole town. It would have been one of the few ways he could have saved face himself to let everybody know, hey, I'm breaking this thing off. Remember, it's as good as married, so he can't just break it off for any reason, but I have good reason to break it off. But it tells us in Matthew, he's a good man, and he chooses to break it off silently. In other words, he's not going to shame her. He's not going to increase her pain because he loves her. But then the angel shows up to him and says, no, 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 no. She really is still a virgin, and the baby really is inside her belly. Now, some people, atheists, agnostics today, perhaps you sitting in the room or listening online, have pointed out that there are certain small animals and lizards who can actually have virgin uh, pregnancies. And so, therefore, maybe this anomaly happened. I would first point out that Mary is neither a small animal or a lizard. As far as we know, I have a skeleton of her. The other thing I'd like to point out, I just think it's fascinating, is whenever this does happen miraculously in, in this, the world, the animal kingdom, it's always a female. Jesus is a miracle from God. See, God is still in the business of doing miracles. But do we approach God at Christmas as a, gee, that's nice, Or do we approach God at Christmas with a heart and a life wide open saying, God, I have taken your place center stage. I've stopped believing that the truth will set me free. I've stopped trusting that you really do know the end from the beginning. I've stopped trusting that when you say, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I will take care of everything you need, I stopped trusting that. Stop trusting that you can literally resurrect a dead marriage. Stop trusting that you are the great physician who can heal anything. Stop trusting that if you don't remove the pain, that you're still good. Now, see, when we do this, we hijack the story of God, and we put ourselves center stage again, and we begin to elevate something or someone else in our life that we need to be fulfilled. Oh, to be more like Mary. Opening our hearts and our lives to all that God intends to do in us. Now, don't miss this. This is amazing. The angel shows up and says, <coughs> excuse me, Gabriel shows up and says, Mary, this baby inside you, he's going to be a descendant of David and his kingdom will never end. You can go all the way back to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and find this fulfillment David's talking to God one day, and God says to David, David, you're going to have a son, and he's going to sit on your throne. Nothing about it. We don't really do this in America. It's not like the president's son becomes president necessarily, unless you're in the Bush family. But um, there's no guarantee in that. But every king wants to have one of their kids become the, the next king. And God says to David, David, you're going to have a descendant, and he is going to sit on the throne, and his kingdom will never end. And many people, many people thought maybe Solomon was the fulfillment of that, David's son, because Solomon had the greatest, most powerful, wealthy kingdom that Israel ever knew at that point. But he died, and his son was a moron. He completely destroyed the kingdom. He rebelled against God, did not prepare his heart and life for God whatsoever. 
But no, 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 no. One day, David, there's going to be a descendant, and his kingdom will never end. He'll be the fulfillment of everything God said to Abraham, the fulfillment of everything God said to Jacob, the fulfillment of all the prophets. He'll be the one. Now, this is fascinating. So I've not, like, tested this out. I didn't think through what I was going to say. I'm literally backstage worshiping before this service began when I had this idea. So I'm going to share a little bit of an epiphany with you. So I've been reading through Judges earlier this year as I taught on Samson. And now I've been in First and Second Samuel with my men's group. which Those are the books that lead up to the kings in Israel. And it's fascinating to me because as we watch the Israelite people hunger for something other than God and they keep seeking after it and all these other things, God keeps coming in to rescue them but rescue is terribly painful and always equals lots and lots of discipline just like in Hebrews when the writer of Hebrews says don't you know that a good daddy disciplines his kids because he loves them does it hurt for a season you bet it does but he does it anyway because he loves them but Israel won't have God center stage so we get to Samuel and the prophet Samuel the people are begging they need a king God's like, you don't need a king. No, we need a king. You don't need a king. You have me, but we can't see you. And all these other nations have kings, and we can see them. But God says, fine, you want to be so much like the other nations, I'll give you a king. But realize this king is going to tax you, and he's going to take your children. He's going to take your land. He's not going to love you the way I do. Now, this is the part that hit me backstage. That's all stuff I knew before. So the first king is a total failure. His name is Saul. Saul will not put God center stage. Even when God rebukes him, even when God disciplines him, he absolutely refuses to put God center stage. God says, fine, Saul, then I'm taking your kingdom away from you. I would have established your family on the throne forever. Instead, I'm passing that on to someone else, a man after my own heart. And that man's name was David. And think about that, by the way, for a minute. Just think about it for a minute. Saul's family could have had untold blessings from God if Saul would have just got his heart with God right. So David steps up, and then God makes to him that promise. And then centuries later, roughly 1,000 years later, Jesus shows up on the scene. And now this is the part that just dawned on me. Not only is God fulfilling the promise, not only is God fulfilling tons and tons of prophecies, not only is he doing something amazing in Mary's life, But the one who was originally the king is now physically known. Israel was saying, but we can't see you. We don't know you're there. How can we trust you when we can't see you? And God says, boom, here I am. See me. And now will you trust me? And now will you believe in me? Even when Jesus was on the earth, Jesus looks out and says, Some people will never believe, no matter what sign I gave them. I don't want to lose the miracle of Christmas in my heart. I don't want to lose the fact that God showed up in the middle of nowhere to a group of nobodies and did the most astonishing thing imaginable. He came near. God was always near. He was never far. It just felt like it. But in Jesus, God physically came near. And when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he sent the Holy Spirit now to live in us, God literally is near because he's right here in you. 
You don't cry out to a ceiling or a wall. It may feel like that at times, that as you're lifting up, your voice is bouncing off the ceiling and nobody's listening, but he is here. Do you expect him to do something? I love Mary's response in Luke 1. Flip with me, verse 38. Love this. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Mary, by saying yes, by saying yes, you're opening yourself up to shame and ridicule. Nobody's going to believe your story except for Joseph. Maybe a few people will believe you and Joseph together. Most people are going to think you're nuts. Mary, do you really want to go through this? That's the Lord's will. Of course I do. Whatever he wants, I'm game. Let's do it. Now what happens next? I love this. Take a look with me at verse 39. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should come visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. There's so many fascinating things in this text, and I don't have a ton of time to unpack them all. I'll go as quick as I can and hopefully be slightly funnier than I have been. Okay, so Mary leaves home. Makes sense. Remember, Elizabeth was gone roughly five months, so she's got home now. And Zechariah, her husband, can't speak because he would not trust Gabriel. I just think that is a beautiful thing that every wife probably wishes. <laughs> While you're six months pregnant. Now, she's been gone five months, so she goes back for a month. Zechariah's had lots of time to figure this out and think through. He has no idea what his wife is going to be like. These are godly women. They're still pregnant women, okay? Don't, don't glorify the story any. Zechariah, he can't do anything about it. Elizabeth can act however she wants. All he can do is keep his mouth shut, literally. And now there's two pregnant women in the house. Now, Mary probably had no way. She had no cell phone, no email, no way to get a hold of Elizabeth. She probably just showed up on the door. And the moment that the door opens, the baby inside of Elizabeth starts going nuts. Now, I'm guessing this isn't quite like what my kids did, but my wife all the time be like, oh, did you feel that? You do realize the baby's inside you, right? <laughs> She'd be like, no, 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 put your hand here. I'd be like, mm, no, was that gas? I think I felt something. Occasionally, like, this crazy foot sticks out, and you're like, dude, I can see toes. But in this moment, in this moment, the baby's in there doing jumping jacks. I mean, this is like full expectation. John the Baptist knows something amazing has happened, and Elizabeth knows this is different. You know, earlier, I'm getting a hand and a foot and a head and whatever. It's kind of uncomfortable. This is different. The baby inside me just started flipping around and swimming inside the amniotic fluid there. He's like, this is going crazy. And she knows it, and she's like, wow, something amazing is going on with you, girl. What is up? The baby inside you is not just a baby. Now, by the way, pause, a little side note for a second. Think about the power of this verse, these verses, for a, a pro-life perspective. Babies and bellies play significant roles in the story. These aren't just fetus. I mean, Mary's a few weeks pregnant. Far earlier than what many in our culture consider life today. But it's the Messiah. 
the babies are having a party together. There's something special here. And that's not intended to be a condemning statement for those of you who maybe have had an abortion. It's just supposed to be a statement that challenges you to think about how you see the world. And now, in this moment, Mary and Elizabeth are excited. I love this. What Elizabeth does, it actually says right there in verse 42, verse 42, Elizabeth gave a glad cry. In the Greek, it's really like she shouted. I mean, there's really no great point. I love this because Zechariah can't say a word. So the guy's over there, mute, can't speak, and the ladies are having a party. And by the way, isn't it mostly like that in worship and in churches? Most of the men, not all, some of you are like, hey, I'm the exception. I know you are. But most of the women are like clapping and hooping and hollering. Woo! Most of the guys are like, yes. Gee, that's nice. <laughs> and I love this because she gives some sort of loud shout like, whoa, girlfriend, that's awesome. Something's going on in here and something's going on in there. God is good. And they're high-fiving and they're celebrating and Zechariah's in the corner going, As we get ready to land this plane, there's a lot of amazing things in this story. But the most amazing thing, don't miss it, is what God is doing in the story. Again, it's been over 400 years of silence. Over 400 years of silence in Israel. Entire family lineages have come and gone, and nobody's heard a word from God. But there are two ladies from the middle of nowhere who still prepared their hearts as if God could and might show up at any moment. How about you? What's amazing to me is each time God does something amazing in Luke 1, somebody sings a song of worship back to their king. Mary does that. In the Latin, the very first word here is called the Magnificat. That's where we get the word. If you ever heard of Mary's Magnificat, it just comes from the very first word in the Latin translation of this text. But here's what Mary sings. Verse 46. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with Good things. <laughs> and he sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children, forever. What Mary basically sings in this song is that God is good, he is faithful, he is powerful, and he does great things. Do you believe those to be true? Because if so, then let me just ask you this really annoying last question. What would it take today? What do you need to get rid of in your heart and in your life today to prepare yourself for the most unexpected thing that God might do? I don't even know what it is. 
But as long as you are center stage, then you're trying to control the outcomes. You're trying to manipulate the way that it has to be done. And God is saying, no, see, I'm center stage. And if you will just allow me to be God for just a moment, I'll take care of those things. And I'll take care of you. Do you trust him? If nothing else, we learn in the story of Mary that God is faithful. And he is trustworthy. What I want to do right now is just pray over you because I know this message lands in a lot of different places. Some in this room have fallen into the trap of this world. You have not followed God's ways. Maybe it's in your morality, in your ethics, in the way you do business. Maybe it's in your money. And God is sitting back going, I so desperately want to use you in a bigger way, but you're not giving me much to work with. Would you let today be the day that you surrender, go all in, and turn? It's called repent. Turn back to him and say, your ways, your ways. I'm sorry. And receive his mercy today. In fact, when I'm done praying, if that's you, if you've never received Christ, you need to know a Christless eternity is hell. And I don't mean like some burning place somewhere that we go. No, no, no. I'm talking when you understand that center stage is God. And you've been filling up that, that place in your life with something else. And then you really meet him. Everything else won't satisfy and what God says is, okay, if you want something else for eternity, have it. And a Christless eternity is hell. And you can have that hell on earth by trying to fill that gap with something other than him, but it'll keep leading you to the same dead end. Today could be the day that everything changes for you. And I fully expect that God can and will do that in your life, if you'll let him. We're going to take communion but listen, while we're taking communion, if anybody in this room needs to do business with God, you can always use the front of the stage. You can kneel down and talk to him. You don't need to talk to me. But if you're ready in this room to give your life to Jesus, would you just do me a favor? Anytime between now and the end of the service and next service, anytime, you could just come over here to my left, your right, under the screen, and just talk to some people we we'll have down there and say, I need to get things right with God. And then just stand back and watch what he does in you next. Let me pray and then we'll take communion. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your mercy and I thank you for your love. And God, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus, would you heal and redeem and restore what the enemy has tore down? God, there are people in this room and they're, they're struggling in many ways. Doubt, dissolution, frustration, Hurt, pain, sin, idol worship. And Father, I just pray that what Jesus came to do was to establish his kingdom. He had to come and destroy the evil one. He had to put death to death so that he could break our bonds, so that we could be freed to worship you. And Father, I pray for everybody in this room who needs that freedom this morning. I pray in a way that only you and they can fully understand and explain that you would give it to them. And we thank you for your mercy that's still new every day morning. In Jesus' name.